This is Ann Arbor Stories. I'm Rich Reddy. Jap suicide sub comes to Ann Arbor. See 38 and a half tons, 81 feet of fanatical fiendishness. See one of the ships in which two of our enemies volunteer to accept death in order to blow up their objectives. See this Japanese suicide submarine and realize what a vicious, tricky, desperate enemy our boys are fighting in the Pacific. Let's hit them harder. Let's depth bomb them to the bottom of the sea. Let's show them what an aroused, all-out America can do. That full-page ad appeared in the Ann Arbor News on Wednesday, July 14, 1943. The submarine of the Imperial Japanese Navy on the page, surrounded by blurry-faced men in various hats, hands on hips staring at the long steel tube. The submarine, twice the length of a semi-trailer, wasn't a prop. It was very real. Some newspapers dubbed it the Japanese secret weapon. The submarine, which would parade through the streets of Ann Arbor to stimulate the sale of war bonds, had participated in the attack on Pearl Harbor, had launched from the Japanese fleet knowing it would never make it home, had been bitten by bad luck, grounded, attacked, captured. And just two weeks after the 4th of July, 1943, it rolled through the streets of Ann Arbor for all to see. The HA-19 submarine, designated Midget Sea by the U.S. Navy, was a two-man submarine designed by the Imperial Japanese Navy. It was constructed in the port city of Kure in Hiroshima Prefecture, 10 miles southwest of Hiroshima City. The sub was made up of four longitudinally welded 10-inch steel ribs, reinforced by a steel frame. Not thick enough to withstand shelling or torpedo attack, but enough to keep the men inside safe to certain depths. To make war, the submarine was built with two 18-inch torpedo tubes, with two torpedoes on board, each with a 1,000-pound explosive warhead designed specifically to sink big ships. It was propelled by a 600-horsepower motor that ran on electricity, powered by batteries that, at top speed, had a charge of about one hour. Submerged and traveling slow, the submarine had an effective range of 100 miles. The only way to recharge the batteries was for the sub to dock with a mother submarine or a Japanese warship. It wasn't designed to return from missions. 26-year-old Chief Warrant Officer Kiyoshi Inagaki and 23-year-old Ensign Kazuo Sakamaki were two of ten sailors selected to man five midget submarines that were part of the attack on Pearl Harbor. A high honor for both men even though they knew it was a suicide mission. At 3.30 a.m. the night before the morning of Pearl Harbor, HA-19 and four other midget submarines launched from their mother sub in the Pacific, 10 miles from Hawaii, just off the coast of Oahu. In four and a half hours, 360 Japanese attack aircraft would descend on Pearl Harbor to sink as much of the U.S. fleet as possible. The idea was for the subs to be in the harbor when that happened, to open up their own attack. Inagaki and Sakamaki noticed something immediately wrong. HA-19 had launched with a broken gyro compass, making navigation, especially precise navigation, extremely difficult. But there was no turning back. They crept towards Pearl Harbor, hoping to navigate through the mouth of the harbor, 
wait for the main attack to commence, complete their mission. Two submarines successfully entered the harbor, but HA-19 wasn't one of them. One was spotted and sunk at the mouth of the harbor at 6.37 a.m. A second hit depth charges east of the entrance, sinking to the bottom, and wasn't discovered until 1960. HA-19 had its own problems. With its broken gyro compass, Inagaki and Sakamaki weren't spotted, but couldn't get the sub into the harbor. They hit a reef just outside three times in a row before grounding and getting stuck at 8 a.m., just minutes after the first wave of planes attacked. At 8.10 a.m., the battleship Arizona took a direct hit and sank to the bottom nine minutes later. U.S. ships attempted to flee for the open sea. The destroyer USS Helm broke through the flame and smoke and spotted HA-19 hung up on the reef at 8.17 a.m. The helm turned right towards the sub, shelling at full speed. The volleys missed, but the concussion blasted the sub off the reef, knocking Sakamaki unconscious. The grounding and the shelling had damaged the sub, collapsing one of its torpedo tubes and flooding portions of it. Seawater shorted out some of the sub's batteries, which gave off toxic fumes. Inagaki pushed the sub into a dive and attempted to slip past the helm and into the harbor. They hit a reef a fourth time. Sakamaki regained consciousness. They reversed and tried again. And again. Six attempts and six failures. The cramped sub filling with deadly fumes. The helm delivered one more glancing blow before heading out to sea, collapsing the final torpedo tube and crushing the periscope. Weaponless, Inagaki and Sakamaki decided to return to the mother sub, but they didn't last long. They lost consciousness, woke at night, grounded on a reef off the shore of Waimahalo, 10 miles from Pearl Harbor. The engine dead, the mission over. Per their orders, they set explosives to scuttle the sub, planning to swim for shore. Sakamaki set the charge. Inagaki was in bad shape. While Sakamaki awaited the explosion, Inagaki swam for shore. It was dark. He was wounded and exhausted. He never made it. Sakamaki too swam for shore, but the charge didn't go off. He returned to the sub, dove down to investigate, dove too long, investigated too much. Sakamaki lost consciousness as well. He didn't die. Sakamaki washed ashore and was discovered by a Hawaiian soldier who took the first Japanese prisoner of war into custody. Sakamaki begged to be allowed to commit suicide, but his captors refused. Inagaki's body washed up the next day. Sakamaki was shipped to the U.S. mainland where he remained in custody until war's end. His submarine was recovered. They used an army tractor to pull it out of the surf, transport it to a secret location, search it, study it, recover valuable documents. Then someone got a great idea. Why don't we parade this trophy around and raise money to fight the Huns and the Japanese? Someone said yes. They stripped HA-19 of anything sensitive or dangerous, reassembled it without the periscope, motor, batteries, that sort of thing. Outfit it with dummy wood and sheet metal air tanks and equipment, attached metal cones to look like torpedo warheads. Cut six inch wide and six foot long windows into the hull and covered them with plexiglass for viewing. Put two mannequins inside dressed as Sakamaki and Inagaki. They strapped the submarine to a custom built tractor trailer, pulled by a truck from the Biggie Dreyage Company out of Oakland, California. 
a clever design that allowed the sub to tilt on its side to clear low railway bridges and overpasses. They started the tour in San Francisco in the fall of 1942, parading the sub all across the country, raising, according to one official, $22,000 each hour the sub was displayed in public. By the summer of 1943, the sub had reached the Midwest. On July 17th, it rolled through downtown Ann Arbor. Picture the scene, a sunny midday Saturday on Ann Arbor's west side. A midget submarine, but still a giant. 38 and a half tons, 81 feet of fanatical fiendishness, rolling east up Huron, preceded by two crack platoons of soldier students marching in front of the giant tractor trailer, pulled by that truck from Oakland, California. Families lined five and 10 deep along the sidewalks, folks elbowing for a better view, kids on parents' shoulders, schoolboys riding their bikes alongside the submarine like little rolling pilot fish. Cheers as the scuffed off-black trophy of war rolls slowly by, tilted at an odd 45-degree angle on its side to avoid hitting overhead wires. It rolled east on Huron under the Ann Arbor Railroad Bridge, turned south on Maine to William, where it headed east to State, then north to Huron, then to 4th Street, where it was parked until 10 p.m. that night. Catwalks erected so people could look into the plexiglass portholes, see the stripped insides of the suicide sub, see scarecrow versions of Inagaki and Sakamaki seated inside, touch the cool steel that cut through the Pacific on the way to wage war with the U.S. Booth sold war bonds all day, staffed by members of the Zalgaz Grotto and Daughters of Mokana. An official traveling with the sub said he'd never seen so many people per block pack a parade route. Between eight and 9,000 climbed that catwalk, pressed their faces to the plexiglass, touched Japan's secret weapon. They bought $15,000 worth of war bonds, $210,000 today. Military officials stayed the night in Ann Arbor, leaving the sub parked across from the courthouse on 4th Street, an overnight garden place, just in case. They woke that Sunday, piled into their vehicles and escorted the submarine to Adrian, then through the streets of Tecumseh, then on to the next town and the next. After they ran out of towns, the sub was taken to Navy Pier in Chicago, where it was on display until the end of the war. In 1947, it was trucked to Key West and put on display there. In 1989, the sub was declared a U.S. National Historic Landmark. Two years later, the sub was moved to Fredericksburg, Texas, where it became part of the National Museum of the Pacific War. That's where it lives today. That same year, 1991, Kazuo Sakamaki, the first Japanese POW of World War II, flew to Texas to reunite with his submarine. The submarine that couldn't be sunk, that was pulled out of the ocean, that paraded around the United States, that rolled through the streets of Ann Arbor, that found itself in Texas. 72 years old, a lifetime removed from that tragic morning, Sakamaki approached his old submarine, touched the flat black steel, and wept. Before we go, special thanks to Darla Welshons of the Ann Arbor District Library for research on this story. 
Follow us on Twitter at Ann Arbor Stories, and don't forget to rate us on iTunes or tell all your friends about us. Thanks for listening.